podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am a senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, senior reporter at Digiday. All right, so Kaylee, this week we have a special episode. Not only is this the fourth episode in our series on the modern newsroom leader in which we're talking to new executive editors and editors-in-chief who have taken the reins at newsrooms within the past year, but we also did this recording live during the Digiday Publishing Summit. It was a really great way to wrap up the series, and we got to speak with Danielle Belton, who is the new editor-in-chief of HuffPost, um, which is extra exciting because not only was she dealing with some of the challenges that we touched on in the other episodes of this miniseries, but she's also coming into a position that's been you know, vacant for a while, um, and HuffPost also just went through a big transition by joining BuzzFeed. And then they had the layoffs almost immediately after. Um, and so it's just, you know, in addition to um, everything else that news have been going through, I imagine the staffers at HuffPost um, really were looking for, you know, I think what Danielle describes herself as, as a newsroom therapist. Um, so... Yeah, it's a great conversation. Yeah, she talks about her own experiences. She talks about um, how she's kind of taken the reins at HuffPost. And she was a great, a great way to round out this series. So we'll throw it over to the live recording. We are back. Um, we got a pretty exciting session coming up. What do we got, Kaylee? Yeah, we're doing a live recording of the Digiday podcast, which is really exciting because both of us took over the podcast during the pandemic. So we haven't even recorded like a single session in person yet. Um, so now we're doing it in front of a whole crowd, um, which is really exciting. And we have a great guest. Um, we are joined by Danielle Belton, who is the editor-in-chief of HuffPost. And this session is rounding out our mini-series on editors-in-chief the modern newsroom leaders, um, exactly. people like Danielle who have taken over large news uh, newsrooms during the past year, year and a half. So welcome, Danielle. Welcome, Danielle. Hello. Thanks for coming on the podcast. The, oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So as we mentioned, this is the the you know, final episode in this series that we've been doing on people who have taken the reins of newsrooms over the past year and a half. You obviously have post pretty good sized newsroom, but also a really interesting newsroom at the time when you took over where it didn't have an editor in chief for more than a year. So what was that like coming into an environment where not only are you the new editor in chief and so there's naturally gonna be some skepticism because these are journalists, but also these are people who just haven't had that leader for a while. Well, you know, I think in the case of HuffPost, because they went so long without an editor-in-chief, the fact that there was going to be one put into place and that they were going to have their own leader independent of BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed News meant a lot. So I felt like the, re the reaction I got was actually more warm than anything else and a, one of relief where it was like, oh, we're going to be our own, still our own independent newsroom. We're going to have someone who will champion for us within the company. We're going to have like our own team, our own set of values, our own way of life that's all going to continue. So if anything, it was more of a sign of stability. And so everyone was really nice. Uh, thank goodness uh, my previous staff at The Root um, basically sang my praises to anyone who would listen. And so, <laughs> Those references. Yeah, it was, I, I had good references. I checked out. Everyone went through my, you know, my, my Twitter feed, didn't see anything too crazy. And we were like, okay, she's probably cool. <laughs> so um, if anything, the only thing that's been awkward is starting in the middle of the pandemic where everything's remote. You, know, you don't see anyone. 
And then that, that's very awkward for me because I'm a people person. I get a lot of my energy from being around other people. And so that was a big adjustment for me. How did you, I guess, go about that? Because I think I heard that you did this kind of like listening tour. You really wanted to hear what your newsroom was asking for and, and looking for in their new leader. I guess, can you talk about those first few weeks in trying to make a good impression and, and meet the people that you're now leading? Sure. So I enacted a 90-day plan. The, the first 30 days of the 90 days was a listening tour, which I extended for pretty much the duration of the 90-day plan into infinity. Like People still can talk to me now if forever they want to. Tour. It's a forever tour. Um, and the idea behind it was, was that Coming from the route where I'd been there for over six years, I felt like I knew the newsroom like the back of my hand. I I'd started out as an associated editor. Before that, I was a freelancer. So I knew every aspect of what it was like to work at the route from just being like someone who was like getting paid per story, just trying to meet deadline, to all the way to someone who was an editor working with a staff and a team. So I knew everything from the CMS you know, how people filed, what the, the structure was. I'm like, I'm going to this blind. I know nothing. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is a brand new experience. And the last thing I wanted to do was to come in and start telling people and changing things, you know, start just ordering people around without having any idea of how things historically have been done at the organization. And so I was like, what's the fastest way I can get up to speed? I can literally talk to everyone. And so I spoke to teams, I spoke to individuals, I spoke to staff writers, I spoke to people on the audience team, people in sales, everyone. And one of the wonderful things about HuffPost, we have quite a few team members who've been part of the organization for over 10 years. So they were able to give me like a great overview of the last, of, of the history going back to the Ariana days, mm -hmm. you know, of what it was like at HuffPost. And so I got a really good crash course in the history of this, you know, very legendary, you know, well-respected organization. So I was really excited to talk to everyone. Plus it gave me just an excuse to talk, which I love to do. Um, <laughs> that was fun for me. But it was also just fun to like to just have FaceTime. And so I enjoyed it so much that um, the end result was in the last, this last month, I've started doing team dinners. Where for my team members who are in New York, I'll take like 10, seven to 10 of them out to dinner, you know, get to know all of them, actually get in some FaceTime. Um, and that's been, that's gone really, really well as well. And so it's like the reason why, like, I just kept the policy open forever was because like, I have, you know, like, I'm not your boss for like 90 days and you're, I'm hopefully going to be the editor in chief for a good amount of time. And I always had an open door policy where I was before. Cause I feel like that was the best way. Like I'm not someone who has like a chip on their shoulder or is really particular about who gives me feedback, you know? I feel like everybody has valuable feedback if they're part of this organization. And when you're on that listening tour, because I can imagine if I'm an employee, you're coming in, I'm talking to the editor-in-chief, I may be a bit reserved. I'm like, oh, I can't tell her everything, or I'm not sure how, if I do tell her how I really feel, how that's gonna go over. Like, how do you warm them up to like trusting you to actually give you the real feedback? Well, I try to be as transparent as possible about how I feel about things, about why I wanted to come into the role, about why I value HuffPost and the people who work there. And a lot of times I would just talk about how much I really respected everyone. You know, they, these are like seasoned professionals. These are people who have built their whole careers around the craft of, you know, of creating stories and content and putting the facts out there so people can make the best decisions for the world around them. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for this newsroom. And so for me, it was really more about just 
not being, um, like some people like just like to be in charge. Like it's just fun for them. They just want to be in charge. It doesn't matter whether they actually care about people. I genuinely care about people. Um, when I was in uh, Bakersfield, I was a cub reporter there uh, for five years. And I used to talk to everyone in the newsroom. I would visit everyone's desk and chat them all up. And I used to tell my bosses, you guys, you guys should just pay me to be the newsroom therapist. Or I can just talk to everybody all day and listen to their problems and help them figure out how to solve them and help them with their stories. And that, that, that's basically what I'm doing now. I'm the newsroom therapist. And so I come at it in a self-deprecating, humble way where I really respect what they do. And I know what they've gone through because I've been there before. Got it. And you mentioned you didn't really want to come into this role having any like assumptions of how things were run, right? But you were previously editor of The Root, so you have leadership experience. Were there any learnings that you took from previous jobs into this role when it comes to maybe your management style or, you know, the way you like to lead, um, you know, uh, a newsroom? I think for me, the number one thing I learned to lead with empathy um, that's, you know, like I've had pretty much every job you can have in a newsroom. I've been a social media editor. I've been a staff writer. I've been a blogger. I've even taken photographers and drawn illustrations. So it's like, you name it. If it was a job in journalism, at some point I tried to take it and do it. And maybe I succeeded or failed. You know, who knows? That's just how these things go. I, I guess I succeeded. Oh, that's so I think I did all right. Nice. So um, leading with empathy was one. The other was radical transparency. Mm. You know, like I'm very upfront about everything that's going on with me and everything that's going on in my newsroom. So people, I don't like it when people are surprised. I think that's the worst thing ever for an employee to be shocked. They're like, oh my God, I didn't know I wasn't performing up to snuff. Like I'd rather have these regular conversations with you so you know where you stand, you know? And so like at the root, like every weekly meeting, since we were a small team, I would do like, a, at the end of the meeting, I would always do a series of shout outs to everyone who did exemplary work over the past week. And it was, it was anyone. It could, you could have just helped a staff writer, a fellow staff writer with another story. You could have launched a massive project. You know, you could have written the most popular story on the site that day, or you could have just helped me with a task that I couldn't have done without, you know, without your support. And so I would shout that out. Um, and it was important for me to shout out not just the people who were on the front lines, you know, our writers, but also our editors, our copy editors anyone who really pitched in and went above and beyond the call of duty. So that's really important to me to get feedback. And so at HuffPost, I do a monthly email. It's like a roundup that I need to actually write soon. It's just the end of the month. <laughs> Where I talk about what I liked and what the great work that individuals are doing and really, you know, try to praise people. But I also try to take time out during the month to, to reach out to people individually and let them know if I really like something that they did. And so that's something I really took away from the root. And also just being honest. I feel like far too often people think that if you admit to a mistake, it's a weakness. When in actuality, it's a strength. It's very hard to admit when you've messed up and... Me and my staff at The Root, we really grew together. You know, this was my first major editorial position at a large, pub well, at a, you know, a medium-sized publication with a large audience. And so there were times in the beginning where it's like we were growing so fast and we were moving so quickly that I had to learn some lessons the hard way. And I would just have to level with my staff and just be honest with them what was going on with me so they could understand how best to support the organization. And, and ensure our success. And so I really encourage other people who are in management positions to not 
feel like they can't be honest with their staff. I want to go back to newsroom therapists because yes. I mean, coming in as the newsroom therapist, newsrooms needed a lot, have needed a lot of therapy lately. But then HuffPost in particular, coming off the sale to BuzzFeed, and then what was it, like a little over a month before you came on, there was the round of layoffs. So what were the things that you were hearing from staff when you were initially on that list in total? I think the main concerns were how separate were we going to be from BuzzFeed overall? And will there be more layoffs? You know, HuffPost had really bled a lot under its ownership with Verizon where they weren't allowed to really replace staff. And then to have the layoffs was like just a gut punch for a lot of people, even though they were necessary for the financial health of the company. So when I came on board, the main thing that I wanted to project was a calmness that we're past the worst of this and now we're going to enter a period of growth because we've proven that we're a valuable platform to the larger BuzzFeed family. That we are growing, we are relevant, we are breaking stories, you know. And I want our team to continue to grow and us to branch off the different avenues and areas of coverage because I think that's really, really important to not only have a more diverse newsroom, and I'm talking about diversity in terms of like race, uh, ethnicity, differently abled people, et cetera, et cetera, um, then not just have a more diverse newsroom, but to have more diverse coverage on top of that. Because I feel like that's the best way to grow our audience at HuffPost is to have a diverse set of talents and coverage areas so we can just bring in the widest audience possible. I'm going to ask one of the questions that your um, staff had been asking too, because we had Jonah Peretti on when the announcement um, came of BuzzFeed acquiring HuffPost. And one of the things he had said was that there was going to be a very, you know, I guess, delineated, distinct um, separation between the HuffPost and BuzzFeed newsrooms. Is that kind of the vibe that you're getting now? Like, are they two separate entities or is there kind of any overlap that you're sensing? We're definitely two separate newsrooms. Um, in my time that I've been in, it's been six months now. Not once has, you know, my direct, the person I directly report to, Mark Schuess, who's over BuzzFeed News, has never told me what we should or should not be doing at the HuffPost. He has completely trusted me with this organization and I've had the full support of BuzzFeed behind me for everything that I've wanted to do so far. And that's been amazing. I wouldn't have taken the job if I didn't think and didn't have faith in Jonah and Mark. You mentioned diversifying the coverage. Like, I mean, I imagine anyone coming into an editor-in-chief role, there is that opportunity for it to be something of a blank slate. Obviously it's delicate balance because change is tough, but at the same time, sometimes change is necessary. How are you thinking about like diversity in the coverage specifically? And also like, is there a relation where you're also thinking of how do you diversify the coverage in a way to like also differentiate from BuzzFeed News? Because I know as someone on the complete outside, I still have, I still see both as, these are both general news outlets. They're gonna be naturally competitive in the same way that any news outlet is competitive. Well, BuzzFeed News is very distinct in the fact that it is only originally reported news. That's all pretty much the majority of what they do, whether it's entertainment news, whether it's politics, whether it's breaking news, it's all originally reported out. At HuffPost, we do original reported news, but we also do lifestyle. You know, we also do lots of really fun things with entertainment. We have our historical legacy, um, diverse offering, offerings like Black Voices and Latino Voices. Um, we have... Uh, not just political coverage that's very robust that we're really well known for, but we have our breaking news coverage that does everything from 
original reporting to uh, scouring the internet for the most obscure stories that we can help amplify. You know, like they're really just amazing folks. And so I think that's what makes it different is how HuffPost um, is a little bit slightly more general. It skews more like a traditional newsroom in the fact that it covers so many different topic areas and so many different types of beats. But what separates HuffPost from a traditional newsroom is our voice, is the type of stories we choose to tackle and how we address them and how we address our coverage, you know. Um, I always say, uh, since I came on board, you know, HuffPost is a reality-based news organization. Like, we deal in facts. And <laughs> when it, You have to say that. I know, but you have to say it. So uh, we, we, um, we deal with how things are, not how we would want them to be. So even though you could say that we're progressive-leaning in some aspects, the reality is it's not like we're like, you know, holding Joe Biden's hand through the presidency. Like we're just as critical as anybody else would be. You know, sometimes we, you know, we, we, we someone might even call us a little harsh, but it's like to us, it's necessary to speak truth to power and to hold people accountable no matter who they may be and no matter what party is in power. And I think that's what separates the difference between someone or an organization that's more of a cheerleader and one that's more based in actual reality and facts. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. How do you strike that balance, though, where, because then you still have people out there who, unless you're a purely objective journalism outlet, and some journalists believe this too, like, journalists shouldn't be taking sides, anything like that, but then we are seeing, I think it's a, largely a generational difference, where then there are journalists who are just like, no, I want to be taken aside, and trying to thread that needle of, I can still report the facts, but I can also be the one making sense of the facts. But for another cohort of journalists, that's just a no-no because historically that's just been the no-no. How are you arriving at what you want out of your journalists or what you don't want? What I want is just honesty. You know, if you have a background that or a part of your life that might cause you to think one way more than the other, just be honest about it. Just put it all out there and let the reader decide. Now, there are certain things that obviously, like, I could never write a story about the roots. I used to work there. So that would be someone else in HuffPost's job if something happened at the root or something happened at Geo Media, which was our parent organization. Somebody else probably should write that article that's not me. So I do believe that there's, there has to be a line. You know, like you can be like the daughter of the, you know, the uh, Nabisco heiress writing in journalism, but you probably shouldn't write about Nabisco ever, you know. So that's um, my, my point there. But everyone has biases. Everyone has opinions. Everyone has these thoughts. And to me, it's better to just be upfront about where you're coming from than to pretend like they don't exist. I feel like when you pretend like they don't exist, you fall into this trap of, in part of this idea that unbiased thinking is only one type of thinking. And historically in the United States, that's been basically where it's like, well, whatever white men think is unbiased. Everyone else is biased. If you're a woman, you can't write, write, write about rape. You've been raped before. So what do you know about it? And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> well, you might have an opinion. And it's like, huh, what? Like, I can see a lot of value in someone who actually has experience with sexual assault and the history behind it and lives in their lives as a woman and writing about this experience. And they can write about it from a way that's factual and informative and that's well-sourced and well-reported out. But they can also, you know, you can, it's like, it's to me, it's silly just to pretend like everyone just comes into journalism like some blank slate, like we're just <laughs> unprogrammed computers 
They're just waiting for the data to get typed in. It's just, that's not how people work. I guess it makes sense to then have those, you know, Twitter bios saying, you know, my tweets are my own opinions. They don't represent my publication, but you do get to know the journalist. Yes. Which I think is always uh, a very nice thing. Um, but I'm kind of curious, too. So a lot of newsrooms have been dealing with this kind of post-Trump slump um, in coverage, you know, the past 18 to six years, mm -hmm. give or take, um, there was a very tumultuous news cycle and, you know, a lot of it was hung up around politics. Now you're dealing with a newsroom in this post-Trump era. Are there any, I guess, topic areas that you're particularly focused on to try to combat any maybe slumps in audience? Are you even seeing any kind of dips in, in audience at all? Or is that not something you're seeing even? I mean, we've definitely seen some dips. But I don't call it a post-Trump slump. I call it like a return to what it was like before Trump. <laughs> you know, there was a time when there wasn't literally something crazy happening every day. That was called every other presidency before the presidency of Donald Trump. Where literally you would have like weeks where nothing really happened. And things that should have never been a national story would become a national story. And you'd be like, wow, everyone's talking about blah, blah, blah. And I don't even know why. You know, it was a magical time. It was called a slow news day. You know, like suddenly, you know, someone were saving like a squirrel from a pond. Would like be like the thing on CNN for the like llamas. six hours. The alpacas, what was it? There was like the llamas a couple of years. Yeah, ago. it was the llamas. Remember Balloon Boy? Oh, oh yeah. Balloon Boy, yeah. Yeah, that was like a whole thing. There was a boy in a balloon. Oh wait, there actually wasn't. That was amazing, an amazing time. So if anything, what we're seeing is like uh, a court, a correction mm -hmm. from a very news-heavy, scandal-heavy, activity-heavy outrage heavy time when people were really keyed in because there was just so much going on and so much to absorb. Now that we've kind of slowly trickled back into some level of normalcy, like we're still not back. Like we still have a pandemic. We still have thousands upon thousands of people getting sick and in many cases dying every day from a global pandemic. And so it's like we're not quite back yet at normal, but we are at a point where the news cycle is starting to dip back into how it used to be before. And so for me, you know, the, what, what I kind of want our newsroom to focus on is talking about how the last, you know, four years of the Trump presidency and how the current Republican Party, how it's structured, how is that going to impact people's lives in the future? We have a huge problem with voter suppression. Mm -hmm. You know, we have huge problems with the fact that you have a, several members of Congress who like to pretend like January 6th just didn't happen and that nobody should be held accountable for it. And so we try to focus on, again, like finding ways to bring things to light and really push these points that are a threat to our democracy or th a threat to our free press. You know, we want to bring those issues to light and really highlight them and showcase them and get people talking about them because they're really important to us. But, you know, I've always been the type of person where it's like, even though um, traffic is great, I love traffic. I got no problem with traffic. I mean, at the root, like I, I got traffic up by 300%. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> but I don't live my life by it because I feel like that's a fool's errand. You know, if you get caught to the ebbs of flows and you're, you'll just change your coverage for just about anything at that point. You have to have a true North Star. You have to have a soul. You have to have a core of what you will and will not report. And to me, that's more important to have a core that you believe in because people will come back for that. 
people will invest in your news organization for that. You'll gain the respect that you need and eventually get the audience that you want because of it. But at the same time, like, you also have to be, you're overseeing editorial, but you have to be mindful of the business side. And of course. Was it Kaylee, when you spoke to Jonah last year for the podcast about the HuffPost sale, he said what he wanted HuffPost to be profitable by the end of this year? Yeah, yeah, I think that was the, the number he... Yeah, so how are you, like, managing the costs or, you know, kind of managing the costs of HuffPost against traffic being down and whatever impact that has on revenue? Because you all are primarily ad-supported. Well, the, the thing is, is that I try to look for different ways that we can invest in what we already have or maximize what we have already have or historically have done in order to increase ad revenue. So um, we talk a lot about different ways to package things, different audiences that we can reach out to. I mean, when I was at The Root, um, we went through this amazing period, which I believe is still ongoing, where um, people finally started to pay attention to diverse you know, media and we're willing to actually invest in it and spend their dollars in it and our, in, our, um, in our journalism. And so there's that same curiosity here at HuffPost because we have these legacy brands. And so there's a lot of curiosity and a lot of interest from advertisers and how they can reach diverse audiences through our legacy diverse brands. And so um, I've done a lot of thought and a lot of work on how we can help enhance and bolster that as well as create content that is attractive to advertisers, but the commerce is a huge part of that strategy. What are you doing there? Because like, that was something that's been surprising to me, because I, again, I think of HuffPost, I just think ad-supported news site. Not well, you know, we have this amazing shopping section, which is doing really, really well. We're actually hiring right now for it. Um, and we have all these amazing writers who are like, like Prime Day was huge for us where we talked a lot about all the different fun, interesting products that were available. Like even I, like because of our wonderful reporting, like bought an ice maker that I did not need when I already owned an ice maker. But it looks so cool, you know? And I mean, that's the beauty of the Commerce Post where it's like, it's still well reported, it's still well sourced, but it's all these helpful links. So if you decide you like, you know, if you've liked all the suggestions like, you know, the best things to buy to help cure your snoring problem. You're like, oh, wow, I snore. This could be really helpful to me. Let me go through and click, 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 click. So it's really about looking for what people are searching for online and answering their questions through a commerce post. Is that something where you all are having to have maybe someone from the news side kind of like monitor for, I guess, standards or even like thinking of going back and like check, like, you wouldn't want at this point a juice, to be selling a Juicero on the commerce side, given everything that happened there a few yeah. years ago, but you can't predict that necessarily ahead of time. It, as that example showed, you need actually the reporting of, let me buy this thing and realize you just squeeze the pouch and you're good, you got juice. How do you manage, like, hold up, or to what extent do you uphold journalistic standards to the commerce side? There, we always put apply journalistic standards to everything we put on HuffPost. So, even the commerce posts, you know, they go through copy desks, they have editors, the people who write the posts have a journalism background or communications background. So it's really important for us, for people who are able to actually do research, who can do fact check, um, who know what they're talking about, about the, the items that, you know, that are so, of such value to our readers when they, you know, it's what makes people trust a commerce post is if it's actually coming from a place of real information and understanding. You know, it can't just be like, not just anybody can just throw together a listicle of like, 
you know, the top air conditioners. Like, that's nice. But how do we know that you know what the top air conditioners are? Why, do, why should we even trust you? Like, anybody can do that. So it's really about doing the research, doing the work, and then having just the same rigorous fact-checking and copy-desk process that we have for everything that goes on the site. I'm curious about some other, like, reader revenue-focused um, editorial products. Like, so what is your kind of thoughts on a paywall or, like, a subscription model? Is that something that, you know, is ever being talked about for HuffPost? Is that something that you're kind of against in general? Just curious, maybe, like, if a paywall is something that you'd ever imagine going up. No. All right. Here to elaborate. <laughs> I am anti-paywall because I think information should be easily accessible and I think it should be free. I think if when you put an important story behind a paywall, you basically just told huge swaths of the American population, you don't get to see this story. I know you already paid like a thousand to a thousand dollars for this Apple MacBook you got sitting there on your desk, but now you need to go ahead and pay me like another, you know, $10 a month if you want to actually read this thing that's going to impact your life. And that's to me like, I know that we have to make money. I support journalism making money in order to stay in business. But I just feel like a paywall in some cases, it takes away from the democratic nature, demo, you know, democratic nature. I'm, I think I just made up a word. I'm it sounded right though. Yeah. It sounded right. It felt wrong though, coming out of my mouth. It, it takes away from the, just the free nature of the information in our society. I would hate for it, you know, if Google came up with a bunch of tears when I would search for things like, oh, but if you want these A1 search results, you got to pay me, you know? And it's just like, well, wait, I already, I already paid for the internet. Like, what more do I have to pay for? Um, so I'm someone who really values uh, information. Um, I'm someone who, growing up, went to the library literally every weekend of my childhood where I read magazines and newspapers for free as well as any book that my little child heart desired. And that had a huge impact on me. And I want the same for everyone else. Democratic. I think democratic is. Yeah, democratic makes more sense. And now you've said it, and now our producer can go in for this episode <laughs> next week, dub that in, and this is how a podcast is made. Yeah, I'm only the editor-in-chief editor -in -chief of HuffPost, and I can't talk. It's sad. We co-host podcasts. I struggle with talking. Yeah, you have to re-edit all the time. It's <laughs> but, I mean, that's a hard stance on a paywall, and BuzzFeed's about to go public. They're going to have now public investors. They're going to have those quarterly earnings calls. They're going to be asking about a BuzzFeed Prime type thing, some sort of paywall. Like, how has that stance gone over with the higher-ups at the corporate level that, like, <laughs> you don't want a paywall ever at HuffPost? I think it's pretty well supported at BuzzFeed. I, f I feel like I'm on the same wavelength as Jonah and Mark here. Because um, they have said to me that they don't feel very interested in a paywall in many aspects. So, and there's also, again, there's never been any pressure like, Danielle, I think we're, I think we're going to paywall. Like, these are not things that have ever come up um, at all. And, uh, and when I gave my no paywall stance, nobody blinked. So. What about a registration wall? Registration wall. Like, uh, to read this article, give us your email address and we'll send you a link. Like, we saying, haven't had that conversation, but yeah, I would, what's the... Like, sign up for my newsletter, and uh, if you don't sign up for my newsletter, you can't read my articles? Basically, like, give us your data, and we'll give you this article. Nah, I don't know. That's, okay, so that's us. <laughs> I just want people to be able to read the articles. The articles are important. Yeah. Um, it's also, in general, a younger audience, and I feel like 
and I'm curious, maybe this is a topic that gets discussed during DPS, but I feel like younger audiences might be a little bit more resistant to paying for news just by nature of not having um, as much money to spend on that. Yes. So I guess I could see that being, you know, a serious consideration for BuzzFeed and HuffPost. You know, I guess the way that I kind of look at it is like, if I want to know the information, I'm going to get this information. So it's like, you can put it behind a paywall. Like all, I, all when, when paywall first popped up, like, and I was just a broke writer, all I did was try to figure out how to get around the paywall. Like how many email addresses do I have to come up with to get a fake, you know, get another subscription? You know, like when, and then like cancel it real quick before they, they start taking the money out of the account. You know, like people want the information and they're going to try to get it. Well, I would hope that, because it's what's sad for me is someone doesn't try it all. They just give up and just go like, eh, maybe I don't need to know what happens to my taxes. Just <laughs> horrifying to me. But for most people, like if they really want to know something, like there are countless other sites that will aggregate the story. They'll pop up in other different versions and other places. And so people are going to get the information, but you didn't get that click. So it's like, yeah, you wrote this huge expose. It was amazing. And then like a bunch of other smaller websites all aggregated it and people just read the aggregation and never actually read your piece because it was behind a paywall. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what did you really do there? Yeah. HuffPost used to have like this big contributor network. Like, yes. That was kind of my exposure to HuffPost and early on. Oh, that's where all the celebrities are writing their, you know, Medium post before Medium came along or Players Tribune or what have you. How are you thinking about like the contributor network to what extent you do or do not want to be open to people outside your newsroom having bylines on the site? Oh, I mean, we got rid of the contributor network even before I came on board. So it, it hasn't existed for a minute now. Um, but the way I kind of always felt about it, like I was like, wow, this is insane. Just let anybody just write on your site. Like it seems like ripe for lawsuits, you know? Like, it just seems like a lot of problems because you don't have any control. And it's just, it just seems chaotic. And like, I was one of those people, like I was one of those contributors, like just blogging away on HuffPost. Now, mind you, like I was a professional journalist. So I was very careful about the things I put on HuffPost. But you know, like during those freewheeling, freewheeling early internet days, I mean, people were just doing any and everything. It was, it was a wild, wild internet time. Um, and so I don't think um, a contributor network could work the same way it worked back then. Also don't think it's responsible for it to work that way that it did back then. I mean, the fact that you had all these people who just weren't paid, but contributed greatly to the traffic of the site um, is, is not good. I feel like if you write a story, um, if, especially if something that somebody asked you to write for them, like you should get compensated for it in some way, shape or form, unless you're like writing an op-ed because you're the senator, you know. <laughs> <laughs> from New Mexico, but <laughs> everyone else should get paid. Um, and so the way I kind of look at contributors is much more in a traditional way where we're reaching out to freelancers, we're soliciting high profile individuals to write pieces, blah, 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 folks who deserve to be compensated are properly compensated because that's the right thing to do. Definitely an interesting opinion given BuzzFeed's community kind of contributor system as well. Um, I know myself, I did write several quizzes um, when I was in college on BuzzFeed's community page and 
Some of them actually did well. I did not get paid, but I had a blast doing it, and I that's shared good. it on all my social media. But um, yeah, that's an interesting, interesting opinion, I think, considering BuzzFeed's approach to that. <laughs> the juxtaposition. Well, you know, I mean, everyone has their own approach to these sorts of things. And some people, like, love contributing. Like, I used to, um, when I was part of Geo Media, which owned all the former Gawker websites, um, the most... The thing that attracted me the most to the site sometimes wasn't necessarily the stories that were being posted, but the commenting section. Because mm -hmm. the commenters were so creative and funny and angry and interesting that sometimes I would spend just hours just, just going through the comments on a post. The post could be like two words and there would be like 2,000 comments to comb through, which were all fascinating. But do I think that the commenters should get paid? Like, no. You know, but they contributed greatly to the success of Gawker and the historic Gawker websites. So to me, it's like you have to decide to find that balance between where user-generated content makes sense for your business model and where it turns into just an uncontrollable, you know, mess. Yeah. That is it for our time. We have blown past time. our time. Um, but this was amazing. Thank you so much for joining us for our first live Digiday podcast recording. And hey, I was glad to be here. It was great. Thanks, Danielle. All right, well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. We'll be back next week with another episode.